Voice Nation. Greetings, bodacious box openers and those we open boxes for. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. If you're on your way to Chicago for the Academy meeting, I understand it's just beautiful there this time of year. I wish you safe travels. This is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR, and this is Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. And I just love that word, bodacious. Excellent, admirable, attractive, and that's what you are. Now, how attractive you are, on the other hand, really just depends on who you're standing next to, right? And I love that word box opener, although every now and again, I do get a little pushback on it, which leads us to the first ever, you've got mail. Remember that little gem? Well, if you do, that dates you. I got a very thoughtful message the other day about my use of the word box opener. Quick side note, I covet your feedback on what we're doing here at Device Nation, as this show is all about you, the best of the best, and what you have to say is important to me. So back to the message. He said some very nice things to set the table. And then this, and I quote, I must provide one piece of feedback. The term box opener makes me cringe each and every time I read it because it devalues the role of the rep and reinforces what hospitals think reps are. Even major company executives behind closed doors talk about sales associates as overpaid box openers. So when I read the title, it feels degrading. Even though I'm not in that world anymore, I still respect the great ones. I know when I was a sales associate, I was much more than a box opener, and I knew of those around me who were as well. I was so thankful for that feedback. I wrote him a note back saying as much, And look, I always reserve the right to be wrong. And since we are adding new listeners every day, I thought this might be a good moment to share my thoughts on it because I do use the term regularly and intentionally. Why? I mean, it's not like I've been living under a rock. I know this term has been used as a derogatory term for years, but I think it's time to take it back to rebrand. Why? Three reasons. Number one, to get to the point where you've looked at x-rays, developed an operative plan, put together the implants and instruments, gotten through credentialing at Paralon. That's another story. Now you're in the OR and opening a box for the circulator. That is, here we go with that word again, bodacious. How many people actually get to there, right? I know a lot of students in medical sales college right now that would positively covet being called A box opener, right? I mean, there's a lot that has to happen before that plastic ever gets cracked, right? So on that point alone, I see it as a badge of honor. Number two, no matter what term gets thrown around, let's be honest, if it wasn't box opener, it's going to be something else. There's people in this world who devalue those who they feel are in their way, either personally or professionally. This can come from purchasing people, corporate people, people on your team, quarterly earnings targets. I could go on and on and on. That's more of a mindset than a word. Number three, and this is a personal one. A common theme on this show is a word rarely heard in sales meetings that happens to be, in my humble opinion, the most critical element for success in device sales. Well, you know what? To be honest, it's actually three things. Acing your gallop, being at least six foot, four inches tall, and having been a D2 lineman, I couldn't resist. No, it's actually one thing, and that word is humility. When your focus and attention is on yourself, it invariably ceases to be on the person across from you. And as a bonus... You are unteachable, and in this relationship-centric job, that's a roadblock for success. So I see the term box opener as something that's helping me, right? Never to take myself too seriously, 
always being able to laugh at myself. On a side note, if you find it hard to laugh at yourself, I would be happy to do it for you. Thank you for that, Jim Groucho Marx. And lastly, helping us maintain that lowly perspective that keeps us safe. We are a guest in the hospital. Remembering our support, there is a mile wide, but it's an inch thick. We are not an MD, and we will work hard to serve everyone we come into contact with tomorrow and brighten their day and hopefully get the opportunity to open a few boxes along the way. And we all know whoever opens the most boxes wins. Well, look, speaking of that, I firmly believe that to build a moat around your business, visualize that for a second, Mr. and Mrs. Overtaker, you will need multiple revenue streams. And that means more boxes to be open, more delivery tickets in every case. If you're just walking out on every case with just one, that could be a sign that you're a caretaker. Nothing wrong with that, but let's aim for more this year. There's 284 shopping days until Christmas, and I am here to give you an early present to help you accomplish just that. I know it's hard to believe that it's even better than that BB gun behind the Christmas tree. Uno by Genadine, single-use negative pressure wound therapy system. Super simple and intuitive interface. Two pressure settings, continuous or waveform. Comes with two dressings that themselves will hold any anywhere from 40 to 70 ml, depending on size. So when you add a 70 ml tank, that's a lot. Great device. I have thoroughly enjoyed showing it, and they are a great company and easy to work with. A friend of mine told me his surgeon said, and I quote, I am making the Provena rep rich, and I've never even met her. Well, no more. I will put a link to the company and a contact for their positively wonderful representative, Amy. If this is a box... You want to open. Well, we're going to be opening up an amazing conversational box in a bit. We have quite a theme on that today, don't we? With an incredibly accomplished surgeon out of JIS, former president of the Hip Society and the Knee Society, deputy director of CCJR, founder and president of Operation Walk USA. I could just keep going on. A real mundane MD, a dapper doctor, if there ever was one, Dr. Adolf Lombardi. You're going to want to hang around for that. Just an incredible conversation. Well, quick rewind. Last week, we talked about ways we can look at what we're doing right now to best position us for opportunity in this business of medicine world we find ourselves in. I do not see doom and gloom, and neither should you. There are just some incredible things going on in our space right now, and I believe the overtaker will see it and leverage it to his or her advantage. One way we talked about doing just that last week was to do kind of a brand audit of ourselves on social media, that perhaps getting the me out of social media, there's that humility theme again, right, might help you in terms of how others perceive and ergo might want to engage with you on said opportunities. Well, today, let's look at something else you may want to consider, and let's go to one of the best scenes ever from one of my favorite shows, The Office, to make the point. Anybody have any ideas what we could do? Any suggestions? Yes, Andy. What if we changed our outgoing answering machine message so it just had a little more zing and a little more pep? Zing and pep. See, that's those are the kind of words we're looking for. Yes, Jim. What about if we did an even newer voicemail message that had even more zing and pep? Now we're cooking. 
I like this. Now we're cooking. I can literally play that 20 times and laugh every time. Well, buried under it is some real profundity. Doing what you've always done, but just with a little more zing, a little more pep. That's easy, right? Too easy. And it's the hallmark of the caretaker, whether you're a company or a rep. Don't push the envelope. Don't step out of line. Just do the same, but just with a little bit more zing, a little bit more pep. Nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. Just know that those multiple revenue streams we talked about earlier, that moat around your business, it doesn't just show up in your mailbox and it's not constructed with zing and pep. It's built with looking at this big word here for many of us in a whole new way. Networking. Let's define it. The intentional action or process of interacting with others to exchange information and develop professional or social contacts. I added intentional there as it just doesn't happen unless you put something into action. Where does this action take place? It takes place on social media, social circles, even competitive circles. Shocking, I know. Engage competitive reps in conversation. You have strong relationships and they have strong relationships. It's working together on a sideline outside the realm of the possible. The overtaker says yes and will not let ego get in the way of some good old-fashioned mailbox money. Meetings are a great platform for this exchange. While you're at AUKUS, ICJR, the big sports meeting coming up at Colorado, get off your island and introduce yourself to people at other booths. Take a look at their offerings. Make sure they know your name. Great quote from LinkedIn Luminary and networking Zen master Johnny Cafaro from a recent post on this very subject. Read it to you real quick. Never be afraid to network and make connections. The worst that can happen is that... One conversation went nowhere, but did you lose anything? No, you still had a good talk with a new person. The best and more likely outcome would be creating friendships, maintaining working relationships, and countless amazing opportunities to help you grow. Say that again, opportunities to help you grow. So true. And for many of us, this will involve completely reinventing our networking strategy. No zing, no pep, something completely new, and can we be honest, out of our comfort zone. So here's the homework, and I'm doing it right along with you. Do a network audit of ourselves. Are we making intentional connections outside of our immediate day-to-day? You know, it's been so easy over the years, right, to not do that. It's been build a company house, reside there, close the front door, and basically never leave. But in today's climate, if you're going to be an overtaker and you want to start opening up more boxes, creating more revenue streams, and see that moat constructed around your business, well, here is something you may want to consider opening up the front door to that company house, head out onto the sidewalk, and start meeting neighbors you've never talked to before. Well, Mr. Rogers said, who are the people in your neighborhood? And Dr. Adolph Lombardi is certainly one of our neighbors in the orthopedic reconstruction neighborhood. And it is an absolute delight and a privilege to have him on Device Nation to share his story. Dr. Lombardi, welcome to the show, sir. Nice to be here. Dr. Lombardi, you are truly one of my heroes in the joint reconstruction world, and it's such an honor to have you on Device Nation. I'm looking forward to asking you about JIS, White Fence, the Vanguard Knee. 
the suitcase gift for fellows. But first, let's go back to Philadelphia, sir. What put you on the path to medicine? Well, my history is that uh, I was born and raised in a uh, small Italian family. My father came from Italy in the early 50s and brought mom over in 52. I lived in a small Italian community and there was an Italian physician that I just so respected. And I always would say to my dad and my mom, I'm going to be like him. And so that's why I wanted to do medicine. I wanted to be like Dr. Anastasia. I had my heart set on doing medicine from when I was as young as I can remember. Uh, and I went through uh, elementary, high school, all, you know, geared up to be a doctor, wanting to be a doctor. And when I actually applied to uh, schools, colleges, you know, I wanted to stay in Philly. That's where my family was. So I looked at the three schools that had great success in getting you to, into medical school. And at that time, it was the University of Pennsylvania, St. Joseph's University, and uh, Villanova. I picked St. Joe's because uh, they were very friendly and very accepting and sent me letters and basketball tickets and all sorts of things. And they had a great average of, you know, great percent. Right. Well, little did I know, we started with 250-plus pre-meds and graduated 34. Whoa. No wonder they got 95, 98% accepted. I saw at Temple a slight detour into general surgery. What pulled you into orthopedics? I really thought I was going to be like Dr. Anastasia, family practice doctor. But uh, when I started uh, doing the rotations, I realized that I didn't want to be the triager. I wanted to be the treater. In the third year of medical school, I met a... Uh, orthopedic surgeon. Many of our listeners will know who I'm talking about, Dr. John Lockman of the Lockman test Wow! that everybody does to look for ACL insufficiency. Well, Dr. Lockman was in the chairman of the program at, at Temple. And, at, and as a third year medical school student, he came and uh, taught us a little something. I just fell in love with orthopedics uh, because of him. And so uh, that changed my mind. And I wanted to be a um, an orthopedic surgeon. Reconstruction Fellowship with two big names in our world, Dr. Ng and Dr. Mallory. Any reflections on that experience? Well, they were both uh, very, very exciting and challenging experiences. You know, I finished uh, my residency at a small program in Philadelphia called Albert Einstein Medical Center. I was slated to go back to Philly and uh, join one of the groups uh, at a had, I had multiple offers, so I was kind of dodging the bullet there my last year of uh, residency, not to uh, upset anybody. And so I decided I was going to do two six-month fellowships, one in joints and one in sports. Well, it turned out that I got two joint fellowships, but Dr. Eng was supposed to do some sports, and we did a little bit. But right. uh, I spent my time with Dr. Mallory the first six months. I had met him in 1983 at a AAOS meeting, and then... Uh, I got to uh, spend more time with him, and you know, for the six month fellowship. And uh, towards my end there, the fellowship uh, called me in the office, and he said, "I'd like you to stay." He goes, "I don't even think you got to go do your other fellowship. You're adequately trained. You're ready to go, and we need help." And you know, I just said, "Dr. Mallory, I appreciate the offer. Uh, I gave my, I gave a man my word, and I can't go back on it. So uh, I'll go do that fellowship, and if you want me to come back." And he did. He let me come back. And uh, so it was uh, great for me because my time with Dr. Eng uh, was fabulous. Spent a lot of time uh, working on designs with him because he was designing the AMK. During my uh, fellowship, he let me do every knee system that was on the market because he wanted to learn about them. And so it was a great, great experience. So I came back to Columbus ready to uh, operate. And uh, and that was uh, the beginning of my uh, 
long career in uh, Columbus slash New Albany. I read your thoughts on Dr. Mallory recently that he would show up at the OR at 4.45 a.m. even though he lived over an hour away from the hospital. No coffee breaks between cases. Sounds like he was just an amazing person to walk alongside. He was awesome. I mean, he he always thought there were three tenets. Uh, He always taught this, that you had to take great care of your patient. You had to educate from the patient on up to the family, uh, the resident, the fellow, your colleagues. And you had to do research because data was so important. Everything was about taking good care of your patients. And Dr. Mallory was a very, very efficient man. There was no wasted time or effort. He was about doing what you, the surgeon, do best, and that's operate and have people around you to do the other things that, got, that have to get done. That's the way we ran our practice. High volume and large number of employees. Dr. Mallory founded JIS, and now you're the president. Any thoughts on how the mission of this organization has played out over the last nearly 30 years? Well, Dr. Mallory founded the uh, Joint Implant Surgeons in the early 70s. He, he had finished his residency at Ohio State. He had done his fellowship with Ottawa Frank, and he had spent uh, about three months with John Charnley. So he came back uh, with the uh, being the first one to have a cement license in uh, at least Ohio and did the first total hip and total knee in Ohio and actually taught his mentors how to use cement. He was off to the races as a specialist in uh, joint replacement way before anybody talked about specializing. And so JIS uh, got its its foundation there. uh, And then uh, I was able to... uh, you know, capitalize on that and bring it to its next level. I think the next big event for for JIS is when we uh, move the practice from downtown Columbus to New Albany, Ohio. We built a musculoskeletal specialty hospital in 2003, uh, and that was pretty a big a big significant turning point because now we had our own uh, facility that catered to uh, joint replacement, spine, orthopedics. Since its inception, we won the press Ganey award year after year uh you know so it's uh it's a great institution and then as you know in 2013 uh we opened up uh our surgery center white fence surgical suites and to date we've uh, done over 12,000 outpatient total joints let's talk about new albany for just a second i believe and correct me if i'm wrong sir that y'all were the first physician owned msk specialty hospital in the country and i'm just curious uh, how big of a lift was that getting it over the finish line legislatively well we were one of the first I, i don't know if we were the absolute first but uh it was a uh it was a tough sell i um the history of that is that I was operating at an Ohio health facility called Grant Medical Center, downtown Columbus. And I went to our uh, administrator and I said, uh, uh, David, uh, you know, we need to think about building a musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal specialty hospital together. And we could do a, a, a program where the physicians would own part of it. and You guys would own part of it. Uh, and, you know, he looked at me and said, uh, oh, this is really a great idea. Why don't you put it together? And so the first thing I did was to find myself an administrative type. I found a chief nursing officer, uh, an architect, and I um, actually had a couple meetings with Mr. Wexner because I was thinking I would build this in an um, area called Easton here in Ohio, which is a highly trafficked mall, outdoor mall. And, and it was Mr. Wexner who convinced me that I should build it in our own backyard in New Albany in a very peaceful setting. 
And so, um, you know, we uh, went then to the board of the hospital with plans, with 40 members of an LLC I started, and they listened to the whole presentation, and they waited a couple weeks to tell me that they would support a surgery center, but not a hospital. And, uh, you know, at that, that point in time, uh, in early 2000, I wasn't thinking I could do outpatient total joints. Right. So this really wasn't a place I would be able to work. And so uh, we sat down uh, and uh, decided to go ahead and do it on our own. And then the hospital instituted what we call economic credentialing. They said, if you're an owner in a specialty hospital, you can no longer have privileges at our hospital. <laughs> of course. Uh, but that only went into effect when we opened. So for two years while we were building, I still stayed at Grant Medical Center. I did my cases. And then the day we opened the hospital, they took my privileges. And we had uh, some legislative battles. I did have to appear in front of the state legislature and uh, mm. argue why we were doing it against the presidents of the Ohio State Hospital, Ohio Health Hospitals, and Mount Carmel Hospitals. So we were able to get it past the finish line. And as I said, it's been a great facility. We're now owned by Mount Carmel. We did sell in 2007 when the government changed the laws about ownership right. and not allowing docs to own a hospital. I know this is kind of an obscure question, but I've always wanted to ask, why did y'all call it White Fence? Well, everything in New Albany was called New Albany this and New Albany that. And New Albany is uh, every property that's part of the New Albany community has a white split rail fence in front of it. So um, we decided to capitalize on the white fence being part of New Albany. And then uh, we didn't want to just call it surgery center, so we called it surgical suites. So that's where that was the origin. And actually, about a year or two later, there's a magazine that's come out called White Fence Living. Love it. That question's been bothering me for some time. <laughs> Thanks for clearing yeah. that up. Well, there you are. Tell me about your practice. What are you doing these days? And uh, I mean, what's your favorite case that you're doing? I, I would have to tell everybody that I am working as hard as I've ever worked. You know, uh, if you call it hard, I tell everybody I've never worked a day in my life. Right. And what I mean is I love what I do. And so being at work, doing what I do is not a, not a chore for me. I love it. You know, and, I'm, and I also tell people I'm an orthopedic idiot. I do about five, six operations, right? right. I do primary uh, and revision hip and knee. I do partial knees. And then, of course, I've got the periprosthetic fractures and the infected joints, et cetera, et cetera. And I say no to, to nothing. So I, I'm still doing all my own revisions and everybody else's. I'm still doing complex acetabular reconstructions from triflanges uh, to total femurs to distal replacements. And so I enjoy all of it. I think if you ask what my favorite operation, though, is, it's a partial knee replacement. Those patients do so well, so well, and they are very happy. All in all, you know, that's what's the beauty of doing joint replacement. We have happy patients. You know, it, it's not unusual to walk into church the grocery store or just around town somewhere and somebody to tap you on the shoulder and say, thanks doc, you gave me a new lease on life. Uh, and so that's, that's really what keeps me motivated, keeps me going day in and day out. Y'all were so ahead of the curve doing joint replacement in an outpatient setting. And I know many of the cases that you've done over your career have been done in just that question. Is outpatient surgery today safe? So let's let's talk a little bit about that because I answer this question. I tell people I kind of cheated, didn't I? Right? I 
went from a full service hospital, as I told you, Grant Medical Center, right. go to a musculoskeletal specialty hospital. Now, here we are. We're in New Albany. There's not a lot of uh, the closest hospital is five miles or so away. Not that far, but still far enough. We have no ICU. We have no emergency room. And yet here we are at this specialty hospital doing triflanges, total femurs, distal femur replacements, all sorts of complex revision work without an ICU. So we learned that the key to success was optimizing the patient preoperatively. So from early, early in my career, I had a medical person practice, evaluate all of my patients, make sure that they were medically acceptable. And so this has become routine now. Everywhere you go, people talk about medical optimization, setting parameters for diabetic control, hypertension, all, all the various comorbidities that you think can think of. And if we dial that in and we do a good preoperative optimization, then we change the mantra. We're no longer operating on the sick patient who has a hip or a knee problem. We're operating on the healthy patient who has a hip or a knee problem. And we're going to be able to get that patient through the operation with little difficulty. Uh, and so that's where the outpatient setting gets its genesis in our practice. Here I am. I'm at a musculoskeletal specialty hospital, initially 40 bed. We did grow to 60 because we were getting, we got super busy. But, you know, length of stay started to go down because if we can thank anything from the MIS, minimally invasive surgery, uh, era that, that that was sprung into action by uh, our good friend, uh, Dr. Berger. What did we learn from that? It wasn't the length of the incision or the size of the incision. It was all the perioperative care we gave preoperative, perioperatively, postoperatively. We developed that. We we processed that. We, we improved on it. We used evidence-based practice to change what we had to change. And so all of a sudden, you see length of stay in our facility uh, going down from, you know, initially, you know, when we started in 03, we were at about 2.3 days, 2.5 days. We get down to, you know, two days to a day and a half. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start going in the uh, to the room and you see the patient you've operated on the day before. And you're basically saying, hello, we're going to get you breakfast and we're going to send you home. So it was an easy transition to say, why don't you just go home? Right. And so we started in the outpatient, we started in the surgery center to do our outpatients and we learned uh, what we needed to modify. Uh, and we did studies looking at all these labs that we ordered on patients post-op day number one. Did we act on them? Did we need to order those labs? And it was a clear answer. No, we didn't. And so I think that it was an easy transition to outpatient work because we had the inpatient facility to help us figure that out. And now I think uh, everyone around us has uh, learned from what we've done and has, start and has started to do it. And more and more pa people are doing uh, outpatient surgery. Just had a course on it last Friday, multiple people lecturing on it. The results are quite, quite honestly great. Yes, I think this is here to stay and going to continue to grow. As a medical device rep, sir, one of the bucket list items that I'm never going to be able to check off is Dane Miller cutting off my necktie at a meeting. You worked for 15 years on the Surgeon Advisory Board at Biomed. Those were some halcyon years there. What was it like working with him? I got to meet Dane in the late 80s, and I actually went to present to Dane 
my thoughts and ideas on what initially was the Maxim knee and now is the Vanguard knee. And uh, Dane was a very bright, gracious, kind, engaging individual. He was awesome. Uh, I got to use one word. You know, he listened to what I had to say. He was intrigued. He was very receptive. You know, I had gone to uh, several other companies that year who were perhaps not as receptive. And uh, it was a no-brainer that I was going to take my ideas, take my energy and thoughts and work with Biomet. It's been a great association. I started my association with Biomet in um, late 80s, early 90s. Our patent issued in 1992. And I continue to work with now Zimmer Biomet, but with Biomet uh, all these years, never having wavered. I read that original patent, 5330534, and I quote, The present invention provides a prosthetic replacement system for a knee having independently interchangeable components wherein different sized femoral components can engage different sized tibial components. One up, one down sizing was pretty much the the standard bear right. in the nineties. That was that was groundbreaking stuff there. Yes, and then it was that was my my big uh, <clears throat> that was one of my points uh, of uh, of our and uh, our new prosthesis. And the other was to develop a system approach because at the time, if I was going to do a CR knee, I was doing one implant, and I was doing another implant for a PS and a third implant for some sort of constrained condor knee. And so, uh, I mean, my thought was, why isn't there a system that I can move from CR to PS and actually ultimately then to uh, a constrained implant? And, um, you know, that's what we did. That's what we were able to do with this system. Uh, get the interchangeability and get this, get the system. There was not a, we were, I think we were the first ones to come to market without what I call the system approach. The Maxim knee, Vanguard, I loved representing that knee, by the way. Taper lock, signature, those were really heady projects yes. uh, that have made a huge impact on implant design today. Did you know at the time that you were making history? Uh, no, I, I really didn't. I mean, I, I knew what I wanted to see. I had uh, been engaged with Dr. Eng. He was, if one thing he, he did that taught me was you questioned everything you did and you and you and you went to the literature, you found the answers. You know, he was just awesome with that res- in that respect. I can recall coming back to Ohio and doing a, a total knee with Dr. Mallory and him looking at me and he goes, wow, you are a totally different surgeon <laughs> when it comes to the knee than what I taught you. Wow. Uh, and and the, and he was the one who really pushed me, you know, saying you've got all these ideas and you got these techniques. You need to take them, write them down and go and talk to industry. And that's what I did. I started writing down my wish list, as I called it, and what I saw in an implant. And, you know, like the interchangeability, the system approach, what degree of slope I wanted the tibia cut, all sorts of things. So by the time I went to the three companies I went to to present my ideas, and by the way, I never signed an NDA at that time because I didn't know about an NDA, <laughs> a non-disclosure agreement. You know, you, you would never do that today. That's right. You know. You would probably uh, be better off taking your ideas and trying to develop a patent and then go to a company as opposed to the way I did it, where I went to the company and then we worked together to patent the product. But, you know, I didn't know that that was the way you were supposed to do it. No one, t- no one <laughs> gave me any advice to the different. And, you know, Dr. Mallory said, you know, just go talk to them. You know, I assume that's probably what he did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
fortunately for me, it did work out fine. And we uh, had done, have done extremely well with the Maxim and the Vanguard. And I mean, it's an international uh, product at this time. And given me the opportunity, I can tell you to travel all over the world. I have been everywhere. I remember my very first case with Vanguard and experienced a lot of angst opening that locking clip for the first time. I'm thinking, okay, which direction does it go in? And am I going to direct him to go upside down? And now I absolutely love it. And I got to ask who came up with that totally unique locking device for the poly? Well, I had two engineers that I worked very closely with, Steve Harrington and uh, Troy Hershberger. And uh, they were very uh, intimately involved in the project and uh, really felt that the dovetails and the things that were kind of on the market were probably not the best. Unfortunately, the implant that my mentor designed, Dr. Eng, really didn't have the good stability and locking mechanism. And so, you know, there was a, a uh, there were some bad names given to locking mechanisms out there. It was actually Dr. Eng and his group who studied several of the locking mechanisms, inclu- including the Maxim, and concluded that the Maxim had a very good locking mechanism that prevented the, the micromotion and backside wear. So it was, uh, it was rewarding to see that my mentor actually uh, evaluated our, our device and came up with, you know, a positive vibe for wow. it. So. In 2015, you were only the second AUKUS member to receive the AUKUS Humanitarian Award. Would just love to hear your thoughts about that moment. I, I'm, I'm very proud to have received that award and, and humbled. You know, perhaps that award at that year should have gone to Dr. Doerr, who, did, uh, who ultimately did get the award, and it was recognized this year. So Dr. Doerr started Operation Walk, if you will. Right. Uh, it was an international program to go to third world countries and do surgery for those patients. I came back from one of those and uh, realized that I had a lot of patients in my own community, my own backyard that didn't have insurance, that couldn't get the operation. And so I actually went to Dr. Doerr as this was 2010. I've just become president of the Hip Society. And I said, I want to make one of one of my goals this year to establish a Operation Walk USA. I'd like to see if we couldn't get our membership to go to their respective hospitals, to talk to their uh, uh, administrators, talk to our anesthesiologists, radiologists, physical therapists, talk to everybody and see if we can't set up a program. And then we could develop a kitty uh, with some funds for, you know, um, the things that need to get done that aren't going to get done because maybe we don't have physical therapy. Maybe we can't get the meds donated. You know, and so uh, I started Operation Walk USA at that year, and uh, I think uh, you know it got off to a great start. Many of my colleagues very excited about it, and uh, uh, you know, Obamacare did not exist at that time, and so there were more patients that were uninsured. the The, the other part of that is that for as many people that were uninsured that we operated on, there are almost the same number of people that came to us believing they, they couldn't get any kind of insurance, and yet they qualified for Medicaid. So even though we may have uh, taken care of in a, in a specific year uh, 150 or so people, there were another 150 people that wound up getting the surgery, the operation, 
because they qualified for Medicaid. You brought up the late Dr. Larry Dorakis had a wonderful memorial to him yes. at the Dallas meeting. Any any memories you'd like to share with the audience? Larry uh, was a good friend of my my partner's, Tom Mallory. Larry was a, just a, a very kind, brilliant man. He ran uh, the master's course. He did the Operation Walk International. He was always a, a leader in thought and thinking you know, towards the end of his career, he was one of the most one of the, one of the more prolific surgeons talking about the spinal pelvic relationship. Right. So I have lots of educational memories about Larry. I also have some fun memories about Larry. You know, like the time he walked through my house smoking a cigar, and my wife looking at me because I've never smoked a cigar in my own house. <laughs> but leave it to Larry. <laughs> you certainly spent some time. In the Grand Hall at the meeting, any presentations that stood out to you this year as particularly noteworthy? Well, I particularly enjoyed uh, the uh, the outpatient uh, symposium they had. I I think that that was very timely. I uh, always like the uh, the questions that the audience has asked about uh, you know what's going on in the world today and what people are doing. And nothing really surprised me. I mean, I think they were the answers I expected, but it's. Nice to hear that they are the answers you expected. Uh, I was particularly happy when with the response of the audience. We just uh, adopted this wonderful EPIC system at our hospital. And uh, it was interesting. The question was asked, does your hospital system provide you with a uh, nurse practitioner or, mid- or mid-level PA, et cetera, to help you win the OR or help you win the floor? And, and uh, about 68% of the of the um, audience responded yes. So I did take that back to my administrators. So I, that was a very good <laughs> point for me to make. Very strategic. <laughs> I, I saw yeah. you making the rounds at the exhibit hall, sir. I was just wondering, uh, did you see anything that made you think, wow, that's pretty cool? I, I always like to go around, talk to the, uh, to the folks that are exhibiting. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, we have our meetings because people come and support us. I think it's important for us to get there and see what's new in their products. I mean, there's some new cementless knees that have hit the market that I wasn't familiar with. So it does seem that the 3D printed tibial components are going to be uh, on the market and they're going to be going in. And, uh, you know, there have been some positive initial results with one or two of the manufacturers. Hope to see that all of them are the same. Hope to see that we don't have any patella problems. You know, I wrote a paper with Dr. Eng on the dissociation of polyethylene from metal back patellas. These were the earlier versions that perhaps didn't have uh, polyethylene molded into a 3D structure. So uh, I hope that that's not going to be a problem or we'll see wear through that polyethylene on that uh, uh, patella. I saw lots of little smaller things like uh, some new tables to do uh, anterior hips, some new uh, products uh, to uh, do your fluoro with, on anterior hips and, and, and get your measurements. There's some new robots that were introduced to the market. We're entering into that era now where, you know, the, the smart tools are becoming a distinct reality. And I think we're going to see more of them. I just hope that it, we, we put some energy and effort into uh, making these devices or these instruments a little more efficient. Because right now, I don't think they're as 
time efficient as they could be. One booth that really caught my eye was the incredible artwork of the late sculptor Renadro, and I understand you're a fan. Well, I'm a great fan of Renadro. I had the opportunity uh, to actually uh, consult for him, I guess, is the right way to say it, because he was looking for thoughts and ideas. So if you actually look at the knee sculpture he has, it's a Maxim knee. I also gave him some opinions on the hip that he has. And the uni that he has. So uh, it's good to see that he lives on through his uh, artwork. Great guy. Very friendly. Very nice man. Dr. Barron challenged a lot of folks to identify the implants that were on that sculpture. What was the uni? Because I know a lot of people got stuck on that one. It was in Oxford. It was in Oxford. Okay. That's all I knew at that time. Well, one common refrain, Dr. Lombardi, that I have heard at so many meetings over the years is, did you see that amazing suit? Dr. Lombardi was wearing. Uh, Doctor, you embody the word dapper to me. So tell me about your style inspirations. It goes back to, um, you know, my upbringing. Um, It was, as I said, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but my father always made it a point that, um, you know, we would go to the uh, clothing store and he'd buy a suit and and he'd buy a suit for me and one for my brother, you know. Every few years, it wasn't like we bought a suit every right. every year or whatever. But uh, and he always, you know, when we went to church or a special event, a shirt and tie and a suit jacket was important. And when I started medical school and started doing my rotations, I felt it was important to be professional, to dress. Your patients always remember that, you know, hey, you know, I saw Dr. Lombardi and he was dressed this way or that way. And so I, um, you know, I actually comment I made to my fellow today is, uh, what do we have to start a fund for you so you can <laughs> afford a tie? Maybe call me old school. Maybe call me old fashioned. I don't want you to call me, but I do rounds every morning, whether I'm operating and I'm going to be in scrubs in five minutes. I, do, I wear a shirt and a tie uh, and a suit jacket. I see all my patients in the office. Uh, and I understand it was, the, this was the Mayo tradition. The Mayo brothers always wore a suit, not a white jacket. And so I see all my patients in a shirt and tie suit suit coat because I, I i just feel that that's just the level of respect that i'm giving my patients so i like to dress i like clothes i like um looking nice and um you know I, over the years i've been able to find a few uh clothiers etc and, and columbus has a very uh special unique store and that's where i get all my clothes so it is a uh, you know it, it is something i like and enjoy uh so it's nothing for me to try to wear uh uh, a new suit or, or something and or something different. So, uh, yes, I I think I've developed my own style. People know the way I'm going to dress. And it's almost become, I guess, sort of an expectation. What's he going to wear today? <laughs> well, I love it. You've got a lot of style points uh, in everything you wear. Almost 400 peer-reviewed research articles, numerous textbook chapters, lectures at hundreds of meetings, around the world and a CV that left my printer gasping for breath. What's next for Dr. Lombardi? Well, I, I want to continue doing what I'm, what I'm doing. I want to continue to operate. I want to continue to travel. Hopefully travel resume again. I really enjoyed the time I got over to uh, Japan, China, Taiwan, South America, Europe, and had, had conversation with my colleagues, did surgeries. People teach at different levels, right? You know, kudos to all of my colleagues who are able to teach residents, because I think that to me is really, truly teaching. If you're able to 
uh, give the knife over and take a, a resident through an operation. You know, I tried it early in my career. Mal- Dr. Mallory thought I should go over to OSU and, and teach. There wasn't a uh, joint replacement surgeon at there. And I did go over. And I and I personally just found it a little frustrating when the all the residents uh, wanted, were going to go into foot and ankle and they wouldn't even show up at the beginning of the case. And then when they arrived, they wanted to do the case. Well, right. that's not the way I learned. You know, you got to you had to you had to template the case. You had to be present. I'll prep and drape the case. And then I'm going to let you do some of the case. But I think that that takes a lot of patience. You know, that's why I like teaching fellows here. I've got somebody who's committed. They want to know how to do hip and knee primary revision, whatever it takes, how to work it up. And so I'm, I love teaching these, these folks and I like going out and teaching colleagues. So, uh, I like the venues of, of, of teaching at various meetings. So that's what spurred me on to do the research. So I had something to teach people about, write the chapters, et cetera, and, and do the presentations. And I, you know, COVID has really put a damper on a lot of that. Uh, and I just hope we get it back. Dr. Lombardi, I feel confident that you have some sage words of advice for these younger surgeons starting out in today's climate that listen to the show. Uh, what would you tell them? All right. So if I had advised uh, the young residents today uh, on what they should do, my first advice is you started off doing orthopedics, and I'm sure you're going to find something in the orthopedic specialty that you're going to love. And I would tell you to nurture that develop that because you got you have to do what it is you love in order to become good at it. You have to be passionate. So I would say my words to you are find your passion and, and develop your passion and work in that space. And remember, as I said earlier, that you need to take great care of your patients. Never worry about where your patients are going to come from. If you take good care of your patients, you will get more patients and never say no. You, you see a problem comes through the emergency room. Don't, don't say no, accept it. If you can't fix it, find help to do it, get the right person involved, be there for the patient that, you know, I can't take care of this, but I got my friend or my partner, my associate, they're going to do it for you because that's what they remember that you didn't abandon them. You took care of their, their shoulder. They called you because they had a knee problem. You didn't say, Hey, I can't do it. Can't help you. You figured out what to do and you took care of it. Like the lady who came up from Florida yesterday with a trimalar fracture. I get the call, Dr. Lombardi. I said, well, I'll call, I'll call somebody down there in Florida. Nope. We want to come back home. Just get us set up with whoever you think is the right person. And so I had him direct admitted to uh, uh, one of the hospitals, had the foot and ankle surgeon ready and available and the patient's already in the OR. So that's the stuff they'll remember that you took care of them no matter what it was. And that is what will bring you more patients because every patient has relatives, friends, et cetera. When you get the call that somebody has an infected knee replacement, you don't say, well, it's not my infection. You know, I'm not going to take care of it. You bring it on. You take care of it. They have a bunch of people who have primary knees that are not infected. So that's the way you grow your practice. That's great advice, sir. And I'd love to get some advice from you to all the device reps that listen to the show what would you tell them to take their career to the next level uh, in our job? I think you all have to understand how critical you are to the whole operation. You know, some days you've got the hospital against you. You got the doc upset at you. You got the PA upset. You know, you got to have big, broad shoulders uh, because we, 
we got to blame it on somebody, right? And you're the easiest target. And, I, and I'm sorry to say that, but at the end of the day, if you, if you shoulder that, you understand it, you are there, you come through with what it is that surgeon needs, they'll never forget. Uh, like yesterday, I looked at my uh, Biomet rep and said, I need uh, the Striker X. And, um, you know, the Striker rep wasn't there or around. He went and got it, brought it in the room, brought the instruments in the room, and we did what I needed. So I, I just would tell you that that's the sign of a good rep. Right. He then called the Striker and said, hey, Dr. Lombardi used this, this. So the striker reps indebted to him. I'm happy because he was there, figured it out, and got it done for me. Didn't have to wait for the striker rep to show up. You know, I didn't realize, you know, that I would need X, Y, Z. Um, and so at the end of the day, everybody's happy. Now, you can say, well, he didn't get the business. Well, he's going to make that up in strides, isn't he? Yeah. So I think um, you just got to be there for your doc and and try never to let him down. And the other thing that is very important is remember things aren't always going to go the way you planned right? right there's always going to be that little glitch so just make sure if you arrive that morning and there's a glitch don't hide it don't try to cover up don't wish that it'll go away don't wish that i won't need what it is you don't have you should figure out hey doc i don't have this but i can get this this or this or you know so and so has this that might substitute for it. Because at the end of the day, if I'm scrubbed and I'm doing the procedure and I ask for something, you say, I don't have it. That's not the time for me to hear it. Right. Sage words, sir. A surgeon friend of mine gave me a ride in his Lamborghini Huracan once, and it was a defining moment in my life hearing the music of that V10 coming out of the back of that car. Any defining moment vehicles in your stable? Got a few cars in my stable. I would say that one of the cars that probably... I wish I had never gotten rid of, I had the Lamborghini SUV, oh, wow. the LM007. Yes. And I recall buying that car and driving through a small town and everyone's staring because it had a distinct sound. But, uh, and so I think that was probably one of the vehicles that to date, I still wish I had never sold. Uh, but, you know, I've substituted throughout the years <laughs> with some other gorgeous cars. So I, I haven't suffered uh, by any means. I am a carholic. Yeah. There's no question. Well, Dr. Lombardi, just an incredible body of work, sir. And I know there's more to come. A real honor and a privilege having you on the show to share your life with us. Thank you so much. Well, I can't thank you enough. And uh, want to just say to any of the listeners, if you see me at a meeting, you got a question, you want to talk, uh, I love to talk to people. So uh, just tap me on the shoulder and I'll I'll make the time. I want to take a minute to say we were in the presence of greatness today. Dr. Lombardi's influence is on so much in our reconstruction world. And what an honor to have him on Device Nation. A huge thank you. We'll continue looking at that same world through a fresh set of eyes, not just what we did last year, with just a little bit more zing, a little bit more pep as we seek to elevate and overtake Device Nation. I hope you have an amazing week. And if you see me on the Academy floor, tap me on the shoulder. I would love to talk with you. Just look for the guy with the microphone. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>